Hi, I'm Luisa Portugal. And I'm Ria Almeida. This is our show where we talk about coronavirus-related policy issues as we try to navigate this crazy pandemic with you. Our guests today are Kyle Rowland, talking about contact tracing and health data privacy, and Lexi Kirtan, analyzing the pandemic risk communication in the U.S. Welcome to CoronaCast, a Wagner Review podcast series. Ria, we are recording this on a Monday, and the New York Times just published a piece that I think is very interesting. It talks about health workers in New York and how they are not only supporting, but taking part in the protests, even though they are aware of the impact that they will have on our public health crisis. That actually doesn't surprise me. The Black community is not only disproportionately affected by police violence, but also the pandemic. In the U.S., Black people represent 13% of the population, but 24% of the coronavirus deaths. And Latino and Black people die at twice the rate at which white people die. The healthcare racial disparity is just one of the many reasons protesters across Queens, Brooklyn, Bronx, and Manhattan marched in solidarity with the BLM movement this week. Absolutely. I also participated in the Washington Square Park gathering this Saturday. Thousands of Black Lives Matter supporters, revolutionaries, thinkers, artists, and allies came together. And here's a clip of the energy that was felt and seen across the entire crowd in the park. I can't breathe! I can't breathe! I can't breathe! I can't breathe! Help me! The sweat, blood, and tears of protesters and longtime activists that have been a part of this movement actually showed tangible impact that we saw this week. Yeah, Mayor de Blasio actually vowed to cut NYPD funding, and let's see if he keeps to his promise. Also, curfew was lifted this weekend, very conveniently, just as the city starts to move to the first phase of reopening allowing non-essential construction and manufacturing to resume work, with retail stores set for pickups only. I think it's safe to say that this is not how anyone imagined that the CDC <laughs> opening would look like, but here we are. Here we are indeed. Well, I guess one can only hope that police reform and racial equality take a center stage in the aftermath of all of this. Not only in New York City, but across the globe, everywhere we're seeing protests and more. And I think that's also even more relevant this year. This is an election year in the United States. Yeah, and speaking about the 2020 elections, vote by mail, a policy that we cover in episode two, has been in the spotlight. Hashtag pro- plug. Hashtag plug, hashtag staying relevant. <laughs> Twitter had to fact-check Donald Trump after he tweeted that voting by mail would induce fraud. Good on Twitter for fact-checking the president. I just don't know why they didn't link to the Corona cast. Abe and Alexis covered all the relevant points. <laughs> what shameless. And even against the president's will, more and more states are still adopting universal vote by mail. And we love to see it. 
That's all for our news segment. And now here's Kyle on the benefits and risks of public health data collection. Our first guest today hails from California. Kyle Rowland is an NYU Wagner MPA student focusing his studies on impact investing. Kyle has a professional background in startup growth, operations and product design, as well as migration related humanitarian aid. He also works as managing editor of the Wagner Review, responsible for building the podcast platform further. Welcome Kyle, thanks for talking to us. So to start off, can you tell us about the rate of transmission indicator, R0? What does it mean exactly? R0, it's a healthcare or epidemiologic measure that is used to describe the transmissibility of a disease or some sort of infectious agent. So the way that we interpret it is that it has a relationship to a number and that number can be zero or one or above one. An R naught of one means that the disease on average gets transferred to one other person, which would mean the disease would survive or the virus would survive in perpetuity. If it's an R naught of above one, it means that the virus would grow and that relationship is exponential in nature. And if it's below one, it means that the virus would drop and the number of infections would decrease. And so the goal in suppressing a disease is to get the number below one and as close to zero as possible. How we calculate R0? Is it looking at the number of cases? The R0 is really difficult to calculate based on just looking at number of cases, because the number of cases is not an, a true, an absolute true number. It's dependent on the number of the amount of testing that's being done. Another thing that you can do is look at the number of deaths. But in terms of calculating it, what people do is they pretty much reverse engineer the number to look at what has happened since a period of time. And then that will give them the, transmiss the transmissibility or the R not back in that period of time. And then what they do is they forward forecast that number to come up with a present day number. In regard to COVID, the, the R not number without any social distancing measures was considered to be or is considered to be somewhere between two to five and a half. In terms of estimating what R0 is today, it looks like it's dropping below one. And that would be a result of the social distancing measures that are being done. So it sounds like an R0 of zero means that it would be transmitted to zero people. That sounds ideal. How do we get there? And how far are we from getting there? In terms of getting to an R0 of zero, Social distancing was really like the first order response to stopping and transmission. If people are in contact, then you'll be able to stop the transmission to a certain degree. The next step, sort of the second order response, can be uh, targeting specific demographics or populations to try to stop things like super spreader events or super spreaders in general. And one method that people do and have been talking about is the methodology of contact tracing. I'm going to be honest, this scares me a little. With all this information being collected, where is the line where this becomes an invasion of our privacy? Yeah, so this brings us into like a more uh, subjective conversation, one that incorporates like morality and ethics and, and opinion. For something like contact tracing, you're especially app-based con 
contact tracing, you're going to be asked to give up um, some information to the government or whatever agency or organization is tasked with contact tracing. So for example, they would need to know your health records, especially with regard to COVID. They would need to know your location. They would need to know exactly when, where, and who you interacted with in every single moment of your life. But these sound scary, these, these, this amount of, of privacy that you're releasing. But the reality is that the majority of the information that these organizations would receive is really already information that you're releasing to them just with your daily use of a smartphone. But it brings us to a question that's like, who do you trust more if this was in the hands or responsibility of a private organization or the government? In, in terms of your personal line and, and where you want to draw the line, um, it's really at the point where you want to trade off your privacy for your safety and for the safety of others, because that's what the trade-off is. So what happens if a large part of the population doesn't want to make that trade-off? Is contact tracing still effective then? If we're talking about app-based or technology-based contact tracing, you really need to have widespread adoption, which is complicated even considering our starting point, which is one-fifth of Americans don't have smartphones. So I've heard estimates between uh, like 50 and 60% of the population need to use it for it to be actually effective and get the job done. There's two general ways to do it. If Google or Apple decide to do it, they can put the app on your smartphone and require it to be on. If they don't do that, they can do something like an opt-in system where you can download the app. They can do something like an opt-out system where they put the, phone, put the app on your phone and if you want to stop using it, you have to go into your settings in some sort of complicated manner and turn it off. You are talking about Google and Apple and we've heard that they, are, they tied up to develop a Bluetooth-based tracing app. What are the risks there for citizens? In terms of risk... I see security of the information, and that's a real that's a real issue. So, using something like a uh, like Google service or or uh, an Apple API or something like that, uh, in a in large sense, puts the responsibility of the security on Apple or Google or on really whatever developer owns that service or that server. Hacking occurs all the time. So, so for 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 the information really to be secure, there needs to be a really high level of security, which is a little bit of a different conversation in terms of security, but and internet security, but um, that's a real possibility. So we have outlined a lot of risks of contact tracing. In contrast, is there anyone who you think is doing it right? Yeah, so when we look at examples of contact tracing, we the most common examples is we look at South Korea and, and Singapore and Australia as well. But South Korea specifically has experienced other outbreaks, um, such as MERS in which they were required and pushed to create pandemic responses that work. And so uh, they use Bluetooth apps to do contact tracing. They have some protections involved, like deleting the information after 21 days. And they have been, they're, they're a good example of, of where it's worked. So Google and Apple were mentioned a couple of times in this interview, and technology is a big part of contact tracing. So we wonder... What's the role of Silicon Valley going forward and the companies there? I think the ideal situation would be that we harness the power of technology, we harness the power of Silicon Valley, and we create a, uh, a response to the pandemic that uses all of the power in, in, in our hands. Um, but of course, in, in doing so, in giving, in giving power and influence and authority to 
to certain companies or organizations, they're also taking on more responsibility. When you give someone more responsibility, the way to hedge against that is you can regulate them. But again, we're in a fast moving pandemic. And in order to achieve some of the things that need to get done in terms of mitigating the, the pandemic, the debate over how strong the regulation and how strong the oversight needs to be is, is a pretty fiery debate because when you have regulatory measures over certain responses, it's likely to slow down those responses. Thanks so much, Kyle. Thanks for sharing your great insights with us. This was great. Our next guest is Lexi Kirtan, an MPA PNP student originally from Colorado. Lexi is specializing in international policy and development. Last fall, she worked as a policy analyst at the New York City Department of Administrative Services. You've already heard from Lexi earlier in this episode as she shared her thoughts on what's happening in the U.S. right now. Lexi, thanks for joining us and let's start this interview. What's the role of a leader during a crisis like this? During an ongoing crisis, it's super important for elected officials, leaders, experts, the news, everyone to communicate with the public and the way that they do that matters. So people rely on this information to understand an event and also make decisions on how they should respond. Um, this can be done really, really well from what we've seen and it can also be done really poorly. Um, and when it's done poorly, it can often undermine a lot of the faith and trust that um, citizens have in institutions and in leading um, an emergency response. Could you tell us a little bit about what risk communication is exactly in the context of this pandemic? So when we think about risk communication, it's something that's very iterative, it's not linear, um, and really influences uh, the way people understand a crisis situation. So we can kind of categorize that into two different buckets, um, internal risk communication or external risk communication. So internal uh, risk communication is when different people in the emergency management field develop uh, a common understanding of what are the total risk and responsibilities that they need to respond to. and. So a government will come together with public health professionals, um, with academia to effectively appraise the potential impact of an emergency and all the possible outcomes. On the external side, they take that information to enhance citizen awareness about the negative impact of the risk and also they communicate the uncertainty of the risk. Lexi, let's go back to Wuhan. What do you think happened there with the Chinese government and their failure to communicate the seriousness of this crisis? And how would this crisis look differently if they had better communication? In one case that we can really think about is the timing of the virus. So at the beginning of the year, um, late December, early January, we had the Lunar New Year going on in China. There was also a ton of political meetings going on as well that were are seen as very important to, to China and the Chinese government. And so in order to not disrupt those events, the 
COVID cases were not communicated properly. And also maintaining um, tight control of the media. There was just a, a general distrust um, of public health officials in um, communicating the issue and not wanting people to freak out. Those things were, were definitely muffled at the very beginning and often, um, at least what critics have said, has been a really poor and disjointed communication flow. The inability for them to communicate early had really grave impacts nationally and internationally. On a national level, the study specifically said that if the government had made efforts to control the pandemic, especially by communicating through information at least five days earlier, the epidemic would have been effectively suppressed almost threefold on mainland China. So in contrast, what would a good communication strategy have looked like, not just in China, but in this pandemic in general? Some approaches could be first communicating with the public early, whether through regular information channels like the news, whether socially or or through like newspapers, whatever way that people get their, their news. Explaining that risk and communicating the uncertainty is most important. Providing locally specific information. I know on a local level, there have been local leaders all over the country who have really um, taken varied approaches towards managing the pandemic. And I think uh, a lot in the Midwest, but I think the ability for citizens to really trust their leaders is so important. And that all comes down to just being really honest with what's going on. And I think Cuomo did a really good job. He was like the dad we all needed. Okay, let's talk about bad communication now. One thing that we've been seeing a lot is politicians in the US trying to make this a partisan issue. Are you seeing this happening? And what do you think are the issue with this approach? Oh, man, I think that you can't politicize public health. When you think about a, an emergency, a public health crisis, that's not going to discriminate against if you're on the left side of the spectrum, on the right side of the spectrum, whether or not you distrust science or not. And so the partisanship we've seen across the spectrum in that, on the one hand, you're seeing both conservative and liberal leaders on state and local levels um, really sort of taking this this uh, pandemic um, in strides and doing really good things and, and, and implementing firm rules at the very beginning. And then others um, that you've seen haven't been taking it as seriously and deciding to open their states to what some might consider too early. Um, I think Georgia is a, is a good example of that. If we think about Trump and a lot of the inaccurate, misleading statements that contradict scientific evidence by public health health experts, it creates a lot of confusion and sows mistrust in, in ongoing response efforts. Another thing that we see in this pandemic is the rise of xenophobia and racism. Do you think this is a result of bad communication or politicking on behalf of public leaders? The historical weird relationship that we have with China and how that's communicated via the media and how our government officials are communicating that relationship can just arise a lot of emotions. I personally believe that it's the responsibility of 
a society, not just government, to really protect people and to bridge potential divisions that can arise. There's a lot of implicit biases that we have when you're thinking about xenophobia, it's underlying racial bias. When we're thinking of, oh, I, I'm not going to get sick and I feel fine. That's an optimistic bias. And so it's hard to be able to take all those very decision-making process that the individual has and communicate that into a general response for an emergency. Well, thank you for the great interview, Lexi. And thank you very much for coming here. And for those listening in, We'll see you next week on Corona Cast, a Wagner Review podcast series.